Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Bruce Garrick. Today, uh, we have a special Vietnam Games edition, and I am able to welcome from overseas uh, our very special guest, Dave Kershaw. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Dave is uh, the designer of a game called Vietnam Solitaire, and uh, Dave, I came across your game first on a site called Wargame Downloads. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a it's a print and play site uh, where you basically pay a nominal fee. Sometimes it's a can be ten or fifteen dollars even um, to download a, um, a a game that you then print and make the counters and then play. Um, but Vietnam Solitaire uh, was quite interesting, and it was actually such a good game that uh, it's now being published by White Dog Games. Uh, and you can buy the game in multiple formats. You can buy it as a folio game without a box with just rules uh, and very uh, nice sturdy counters and a nice map. Or you can buy a whole boxed game. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about how it became to uh, came to that point, Dave. But to start off, you know, we're talking about Vietnam games. Now I just want to jump right in and read a little piece that you wrote. It's the beginning of your designer's notes. And... Uh, it's, it goes like this. This is from the designer's notes to Vietnam Solitaire. It says, I decided to make a solitaire game after visiting Vietnam and reading up about the war, including the Vietnam Historical Atlas. My pre-educated impression was that the Viet Cong guerrillas were experts at jungle warfare who ambushed unwilling U.S. conscripts, forcing America out of the war and overrunning South Vietnam. This is far from what happened and is an impression that owes more to Hollywood than historical reality. In the real Vietnam War... The Viet Cong were largely ineffective, and the North Vietnamese Army was outgunned. The Army of the Republic of South Vietnam, or the Arvin, had limited capability, but U.S. forces rarely lost. And so I find that fascinating, Dave, because it takes you into a, a game situation in which you have a, a lot of um, disparity in the forces, and the winning side actually has the much lesser military capability. Um, how did you kind of develop that impression how did it change and then how did that inform your design of the game since you ended up with this weird imbalance yes well i mean it all came from that original trip to uh, vietnam which was um about 15 years ago now um i think not many people have probably gone to vietnam as a, as a destination at that point um it was myself and uh the uh my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife and we went on a uh, culinary tour of Vietnam. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, they have a quite a unique cuisine, and it's quite regional, too, and we're both big foodies, so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's good fun. We started off in the south in Ho Chi Minh City, and then we uh, took a flight up to the north and went around uh, Hanoi and uh, Halong Bay, and when we were down south, we also went to the Chu uh, Chi Tunnels, which are now a big sort of forest area there, and up and down the Mekong River. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very enjoyable trip. Um and part of it as well, we also went to see the War Museum in uh, Hanoi. Okay. Fascinating experience to go to. And one of the things that I really noticed about traveling around Vietnam, the South is definitely a bit more developed than the North. And I suppose it might have changed now because it's 15 years on, so right. this is from 15 years ago. But uh, the South is definitely a little bit still, even today, a little bit more advanced than the North. You know, the streets are a bit wider. There's more motorbikes and less bicycles, whereas mm-hmm. in the north it's a little bit more agrarian and uh, a bit more backwards, mm-hmm. if that's the word to use in, in the south. The other thing that you notice also when you're traveling through uh, Vietnam, in the north there are enormous numbers of war memorials. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like when you travel around uh, England, every okay. little village has its World War One war memorial because so many people were killed. Right. And it's the same in the it's same in north, particularly North Vietnam. Huge numbers of war memorials, and you have Nowhere near as many in the south. Okay. So, I don't know if that's what people are interested in going into the wee tunnels down at Chi and speaking to the locals. But, like I say, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about the uh, Vietnam War. I just knew it was something that had happened some time ago, and uh, America had lost it, and the North had won it. That was a very, very simplistic understanding I had of it. We don't really learn anything about it in school here. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, my from England originally, although I live in Northern Ireland now. So that sort of got me interested in maybe thinking about how you would design a war where the North Vietnamese army and, to a lesser extent, the Viet Cong would win. And 
my initial design was a solitaire game because I'd been thinking a lot about solitaire games and when I uh, had my first child I was sort of forced down the route of solitaire games in mm-hmm. any case because, you, know, <laughs> right. you know when you're a young child you don't really have a lot of time for a lot else and I did draw up the very first design for Vietnam solitaire when I was uh, shortly after we left Vietnam and uh, we went to Thailand and we were having a bit of a relaxing time there sitting around the pool in a little town called Krabby and I did the first ever design of those the the way the game uses those uh, regions and areas in it. Yes. And looking at the map now with the squares. I remember sketching that out with the squares and basing it on my knowledge of the country as I walked around it and seeing, you know, perhaps there'd be a way that you could control regions and whoever controls the most regions has the most influence would gradually win the war. And simultaneously, there would be a political system which would reduce the ability of the uh, Americans to keep adding extra forces and keep propping up the South. So that would be the attritional element. And it would have to be a solitaire game because I wasn't really sure how you would do it as a two-player game, but I thought as a solitaire simulation, it would be uh, quite an intriguing subject. So that's my initial sort of curiosity peaked about this. And then when I uh, came home and I got the... uh, Vietnamese Historical Atlas, which is sort of my primary source that I use when designing the game, because I love atlases. And, yeah, atlases you know, are great. Of, they are brilliant. And any kind of uh, book that I have, any war game books that I read, if they don't have decent maps on them, you almost feel like throwing them at the wall. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to track what's going on. I agree. Yeah, so when I was reading that and looking at the uh, situations and, and seeing how it would work, that sort of helped me sort of crystallize how the game would work. And I don't know if it... Would you consider it fairly controversial to say that... Uh, I mean, my, my philosophy at the start of it was you can't win. It's how long can you survive, more or less. That's, that's, clearly, your, your, uh, that's clearly your philosophy. Um, and I'll just... For the listeners who aren't familiar with the game, uh, which will probably be most of them, uh, the way that the game works is that you have a, uh, a map, which, as Dave just described, is divided into regions, which are almost corresponding to the sort of um, uh, U.S. had four uh, core divisions in, in, in Vietnam where the different uh, military commands. It's not quite like that, but it's uh, it's similar. There's the, the uh, Mekong Delta, Saigon, the Central Highlands, and then an area adjacent to, uh, to the north of Vietnam. Um, actually, uh, there are actually five regions in the game, but, um, there's no way in the game that I have been able to find that you can actually win because you eventually, um, basically run out of political will the way that the game works and the original game works. And this is interesting because there's actually a second game that's uh, yes. been released. Now we'll talk about that in a little bit, but um, there is a second set of rules that comes in. If you want to buy the white dog version rather than the, uh, the download version, you'll get a big bonus there. So uh, the original game is such that anytime the U S does anything uh, and when I say U.S., I mean the U.S. and the South Vietnamese. It's sort of you know that's so your the player's side, uh, the non-North Vietnamese side. Anytime they do anything, uh, they pay political points for it, and it's very difficult to keep the political point track from sort of going off the you know boiling over. Uh, at which point you lose. Um, and the game is not so much about winning. The game is more about how long can you play before you end up losing. Um, you know, you you do gain some political points back for military victories. Uh, if you control areas, uh, you can kind of knock the political marker down. But the way that Dave has uh, designed it is that the balance is, it, it's just it, this inexorable, inexorable march of the uh, political point marker up and off the track. And uh, the longer you can make it, the longer you can keep it on the track, the, I guess, the better you feel about yourself. But um but you're never going to win. You're going to um, simply prolong defeat. So that's an interesting, and it's, and it's a you know it, it's a it, I wouldn't say it's a controversial uh, um, it's a controversial uh, understanding of the war. I think you'd have a a, a lot of um, sort of historiographic backing on that, at least from an American standpoint. A lot of American historiography on the war, um, not all, but um, there's definitely a revisionist. Uh, uh, wing of the um, American historical establishment that uh, uh, disputes that, but you, 
it's it's not uh, it's it's not some crazy sacrilege that nobody uh, would accept. So, in that sense, it's almost as a game. You're sort of going into it. it it's almost a masochistic uh, exercise because you you're not going to win. You know, who, you're playing a game and you know you're not going to win. So, uh, you know why play? Uh, which would be a complete. Uh, you'd be robbing yourself of a very interesting uh, and I think a very unique experience in terms of gameplay. And it's there, there's so many design elements to this game that I'm 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 fascinated by and I really think are clever. Um, the way that the game works is that you have these five regions. There's just the Hui region up in uh, n- near the border. There's the Central Highlands. There's the Kuchi region, which is uh, sort of down. It's more Iron Triangle um, uh, north of Saigon. Then there's Saigon, and then there's the Mekong Delta. And next to each of these is the ubiquitous Ho Chi Minh Trail that everyone uh, has, I'm sure, heard about, at least in some way, uh, where the... Um, North Vietnamese constructed this giant supply network outside of Vietnam, went through uh, Laos and Cambodia, in which the uh, U.S. and South Vietnamese spent so much time and effort and ultimately were completely unsuccessful in shutting it down. And this is really kind of the um, the, the way the game flows and central to the game is the idea that the, the North Vietnamese extend the trail down the length of Vietnam and or down the length of South Vietnam, and as they do so, they gain the ability to place units further and further into uh south vietnam and the um the americans have to defend more regions now this this actually in itself uh dave is a uh, is an assumption right i mean it's a it's a it's a it's a philosophical um it's a it's a philosophical basis to the game that it, it's not like it, it, the the south vietnamese um weren't facing sort of an internal uh insurgency like of the Viet Cong it was very much based on the ability to support this through uh the the political control and supply from the north yes the impression i definitely get is that the um, Viet Cong were um numbers wise not great and were largely wiped out in the Tet offensive it right. was uh, uh well it was made the headlines and everything it was a total disaster as far as the Viet Cong were concerned from that point onwards as a fighting force, they were really very, very minor compared to the North Vietnamese regulars, and so that's why the trail plays such an essential role. It's, it's the way in which North Vietnamese regulars and their weapons and equipment get into the South in order to uh, prolong the conflict. It's the only real way they can go, and it's also why it extends from North to South rather than being perhaps randomly placed because um, the North is uh, the easiest for them to get to uh, logistically. Right. Um, and, and the other thing you mentioned about the philosophy of the game being that uh, you're, you're doomed and it's a bit of a masochistic <laughs> exercise, that's that's probably a central philosophy about war games in general, isn't it? There's, there's this sort of two schools of thought about whether this is a game or is it a simulation about war. And most of my games, let me see, yeah, nearly all of the games I've ever designed and the games that I enjoy to play would be uh, on the uh, simulation side of things. Mm-hmm. I think one of the very first games I ever bought, a hex board game, um, was about uh, Bagration in 1944, which oh, sure. was the Soviet crushing of the um, group center. Right. And as a game, being the Germans there, you really don't have a mission. You are going to be slaughtered. It just depends on how badly you're going to be slaughtered. Right. As to, uh, you know, whether you consider it a victory or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we play, I play miniature games probably more than I play uh, board games, and we're currently doing the uh, Shenandoah Camp Valley campaign. Oh, Stonewall Jackson? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm Stonewall Jackson. Ah. And uh, <laughs> we're, I've just uh, gone round and attacked uh, Winchester, and we've just played that out in a miniature game, and because it's a campaign game, you don't know the forces at the beginning, and I had Jackson's army facing slightly lesser numbers of Green Union troops, and they were absolutely massacred. Hmm. That's just the way these things these things throw themselves up in uh, simulation suits. There's plenty of war games that can be played as games, but uh, to me, to me, it's the, it's the history and, and the simulation which I've, I've really got into and I really, really enjoy. If it had just been a straightforward game where either side could win, that probably wouldn't have made me quite as happy. Mm-hmm. Well, the, so I, I should, I want to take that a little further because the idea, a lot of people think the word simulation means that it has to have a lot of complicated systems that sort of simulate everything that went into a certain conflict, and you have to have very complicated rules to deal with each of these. And 
the uh, basis of Vietnam Solitaire is that the game is very cleverly integrated. It's not a complex game at all. I wouldn't I wouldn't say uh, that anyone should stay away from this game because they don't like complicated war games. That that would not be a reason uh, to avoid the game. It really takes a lot of elements, but makes them. When I say integrated. You don't have to have a lot of special rules because of the way that you did this. And let me explain to uh, the listeners what I'm talking about. So each area is, you know, in area games, you know, one area, other area, they probably have a terrain. You have multiple terrain in types of terrain in the same area, um, but you very cleverly move from one terrain to another. And the way that the terrain affects the uh, units is that uh, each unit is more effective in a certain kind of terrain. So, you know, I'm just looking here at a regular Arvin, uh, which is the South Vietnamese uh, military unit. Just an Arvin infantry uh, has three different combat factors. There's, uh, they go one, two, three. And um, the they, those correspond very simply to the number on a six-sided die that you have to roll to score a hit. Uh, and what they do is they correspond to different types of terrain. So the Arvin... Infantry is uh, needs to roll a one on a six-sided die to to hit in the jungle, a two on a six-sided die to hit in the rice paddy, and then a three to hit in the uh, built-up uh, terrain. Meaning that as the battle shifts from the um, from sort of the countryside to the uh, city, the Arvin infantry becomes more effective. But then, if you go and you find the Arvin Rangers. You find that uh, they have uh, a strength of two in the jungle, a strength of two in the paddy, but only one in the city. And what that means is that you're going to use your Arvin Rangers uh, to attack uh, in, the, uh, in the country. And as, the, as you move back into the sea, they're less effective. Now, the, the second part to this area um, kind of system is that areas have um, – are broken up into four terrain boxes, and the terrain changes as you go from the low numbers to the high numbers, and you can retreat from low to high, but not vice versa. Is that correct, Dave? Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> for example, in Hue City, uh, or in Hue, Hue City is a, is a city, the main city in Hue, in which was a, a fought over uh, ferociously during the Tet Offensive, uh, you have jungle, and then you have Hue City, and then you have jungle, and then you have rice paddy. So as you go up, the terrain changes. So you can retreat from uh, jungle up to Hue City, but then if you keep retreating, your terrain becomes less beneficial to the to the uh, Americans. Whereas in Saigon, as you retreat from the rice paddies, you retreat directly into Saigon, and Saigon is very difficult to take uh, for the North Vietnamese simply because the Americans are defending in their most advantageous terrain. And so in, if you're defending in Hue, once you retreat to the city, you kind of need to sit there and fight it out because as you retreat further, you're going to become less effective. And what this does is it takes the uh, area movement, it introduces an element of uh, position, which is very difficult to do in area in area movement games, because you sort of just have a terrain in that area, and the area is, is defining its relationship to other areas. Whereas in this game, the individual spaces in the game in in the area are uh, related to each other, and then it kind of removes the need to have special rules. You know, you'd have you know, well, Arvin Rangers have to have a really strong. Uh, uh, attack factor because they're much more powerful they're you know they're better trained uh, but they're a smaller unit so how do you kind of resolve these two things the difference between an arvin infantry division and an arvin ranger battalion and you've done it very kind of elegantly it's just it's just a different number to roll on a die and then as you retreat into uh, more uh, built up terrain that unit will will sort of have less of a of an impact it's it's fascinating it's really it's very clever how did you come up with that i mean did that did just kind of hit you one day uh i don't remember <laughs> i really don't remember <laughs> it just seemed um it probably probably the main reason was because i i did want to keep it fairly simple the combat fairly simple and straightforward and i didn't want to be messing around with like plus one and minus one here and there and having to refer to a separate table and it probably as a result of that, 
the idea came to me about just making it that each formation has different values and different terrain. And another another way it helps, and this probably extends across a lot of different games potentially, is the more information you can get on the map and the counters, and the less you have to have in the rule book or on separate tables, mm-hmm. then the better the game's going to be and the quicker it's going to flow. The white dog uh, counters that they've made, I'm just looking at them now because I've got a copy of it, and they they done them out particularly well with the numbers on them so you can see at a glance straight away what your three strengths are going to be, whether it's in the uh, uh, the jungle, the urban, or the paddy fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very... Uh, the, the game, I mean, you can once you know the rules, there's really... And, and you've sort of internalized the setup, there's really almost no reason to open the rule book ever when you're playing the game, uh, the white dog version. You just, everything's on the map. Um, you just kind of lay it out and play, uh, which is, a, I think, how all solitaire games really should be. There should be minimal referring to any outside uh, sort of resources. Um, but the way that you, you sort of do it, you have, you have this very interesting battle for the individual areas. So um, the, the, the battle in the, each uh, specific area depends on the terrain and the um you know the Viet Cong I just point out you know they have they have a they need to roll a two in the jungle but then outside the jungle they need to roll a one so they're really very ineffective and if you just on the basis of probabilities you start rolling dice you know you're rolling dice against the the North Vietnamese any offensive that you know wanders into wanders out of the jungle by just the Viet Cong is going to get uh, crushed because just the the numbers don't work out for them no matter unless they had you know far more units than than exist in the game, um, which is a very uh, you know I think it's a brilliant way of sort of showing the the change in effectiveness of a, of a unit with a with a minimal rule set. Um, but then there's this other fascinating part of the game which is really sort of driving the game, which is the, is the march of the trail down. Uh, down the sort of spine of the map, because what the not only do the uh, does the U.S. have uh, ground units, uh, they have B-52s and also Green Berets, and those units uh, are responsible for trying to um, inhibit the growth of the trail. And of course, um, the the trade-offs that you have is that if you're if you're taking an action against uh, you either spend political points to bring in units and fight uh, in the in in the country itself, or you spend political points to fly B-52s over Laos and Cambodia and try to knock out the trail. And in, in both in the both cases, whether it be Green Berets or, or uh, B-52s, it seems to me like the growth of the trail is really not something you can ever stop. Is that how you? How you yeah, envision yeah, it's, it? it's, uh, it's it's one of the two sort of balancing factors in the game. One of them is the Viet Cong. There's a few of them to begin with, and they never really grow. They they just they're quite small. And as the trail grows, you can see the NVA regulars really start to take over the the job of the fighting war. And that's that's the primary reason for the trail is to drive the uh, increase in the NVA as they uh, take over the running of the war from the uh, VT. And the um, and and that. At the end, towards as you get deeper into the game, you're really fighting uh, North Vietnamese army versus the U.S. and the, the Arvin, which is exactly how it happened. You know, yep. the later the later war, you know, especially after the U.S. Yeah, pulled out, was you know, was all uh, NVA versus Arvin with you, you know, U.S. Uh, air support. But uh, but I mean, that's that in itself is an assumption and sort of a a um, the the sort of growth of the trail, the idea that you there's nothing that the U.S. could have done short of you know launching nuclear weapons against the trail that would ever stop it because um, you you could certainly have a rule set in which if you devoted enough B-52 strikes to the trail, you could stop it from growing. And and that really can't happen in this game, can it? If if you did that, you would would basically push the the political points off the the track immediately. You would, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it just, uh, just wouldn't happen at all, no. They did uh, when White Dog Games did the uh, variant of it. They they mm-hmm. did introduce a lot more enjoyment into the <laughs> the trail uh, by adding all of the uh, Sams and the Migs and things like that into it. Well, that's ex- well, that's a good uh, good time to start talking about the 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 variant game, um, or as as it's called in the White Dog version, the special edition game, because yes. this is the Vietnam Solitaire special edition. Now, I noticed that the um, uh, that the the credits for the special edition um, are. Um, did you did you um, 
help with the special edition or did Steve Kling, it's, it says game design Steve Kling, did he end up uh, just adding stuff to the game or how, how did the whole special edition evolve? Well, it, White Dog Games initially approached me and said, we like this game and we'd like to do a, a physical version of it. And I said, oh, that'd be brilliant. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, uh, okay, we've got um, a few ideas we want to... Uh, uh, I think what happened was this guy, Steve Kling, had got the game and had been uh, playing around with it and had thought of a few different things he could do. And I'm not entirely sure of his relationship with White Dog Games. I probably mm-hmm. should know a bit more about this sort of stuff. But <laughs> okay. he... Um, he contacted them in some way, or they contacted him, or they, they live next door to each other or in the same house or something. I don't okay. know. They know each other somehow, and they uh, he wanted to develop it a bit more. And I'm absolutely, I was absolutely open to the idea because, yeah. um, as you can see, he's done some really good things with it. Mm-hmm. And he brought in all these different rules, and they sent me over proof copies, and I would read them and review them and make suggestions back again. And it went across in a bit of an iterative process like that. Okay. But the vast, the vast bulk of it was definitely Steve Kling. Uh, he brought um, all of that into it, which was absolutely great. I'm really appreciative of his, his efforts. One thing um, they did do as well, which I, I also quite liked, was whilst it is a special edition and there are all these new rules and um, other things which really enhance it, if you want to play the original game, they've also got the original rules in there as well. Right. So the yeah, game that... contains both the special edition rules, which is more like the advanced game, I suppose, but also the original rules as well, so you can still play the um, original rules as they were in the uh, download version from uh, Wargame Downloads. So I, I, I would actually switch it and say that the advanced game is really your game because that's the game that I find very difficult. Uh, you know, it's impossible to win. I think I think it's an, uh, um, it's very challenging to just try to survive in your game. Now, the the we should tell the listeners that the, the game that is... Um, presented as a special edition game. It does have more rules, so it is more advanced in that sense. But um, that's a game that you can actually win. Yes, um, that's right. <laughs> and the, so, and, but it rests on an assumption. So the, and just to, once again, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about what that assumption is. The assumption is that the, uh, that the South and the U.S. could have convinced the North Vietnamese that there was no way that they were going to win the war, that they had to... Uh, they had basically run up against an impossible uh, objective that the uh, South and the with the U.S. itself was too militarily strong to overturn and uh, that they were just going to have to give up. And, uh, and this uh, is represented by the fact that uh, if you control enough areas for long enough uh, in, the, uh, in the South, then, then you win, basically. Right. I mean, that's that's what that's what you do. You control Saigon and and uh, and other areas and you just um, I think I can't remember exactly how many turns consecutive turns you have to have. Um, I think it has to be three uh, three regions for multiple turns. Um, and it depends also when it happens, um, whether it's, you know, game turns nine to ten, eleven to twelve or or uh, further on. So. But the but the the change to the rules is that there's no longer this political point track that you're trying to manage in terms of of not letting it get too high. You 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 get a predetermined number of political points every turn, and you can spend those on you know on bombers or on infantry or on whatever you want. But uh, but it's a it's a fixed commitment, and it's sort of I, I guess. Would this be sort of a, a – you're, you're trying to play the historical game in the sense that this is the amount of effort that the uh, the U.S. was willing to put forth historically, and then you just try to see whether you can make that be sufficient? I think so. I think you're right there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely the, the – the, I can say I don't entirely agree with it because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I still have the philosophy that, you know, this just wasn't going to happen. But one thing which did interest me, I did read something – recently which was if I, I don't know if this is true either because i just read this but somebody said if you go to somewhere like um thailand and say who did the americans win the vietnam war they would say yes they did and the reason they say that is because they think that the level of fighting and destruction that went on in those years sufficiently deterred their own indigenous movements so hmm. I guess it's one way you look at victory, isn't it? Well, that, that's Somebody very interesting. Says, 
and look at the mess over there. Thank God that didn't happen here. They must have won. That's very interesting. That's, I don't know that if you've would, heard that before. I had not. I had not heard that. Uh, that that um, interpretation, but that's fascinating. Uh, that'll also get me into one, something else that a little bit later. So read, uh, listeners just uh, hang on for a, for an interesting um, uh, tie into that. But I want to get back to the, the idea that you, you sort of disagree with the, with the premise. Is that because you feel that there's really no way that the, uh, the North Vietnamese would have been deterred? I mean, what I, I can imagine that from your, from your visit to North Vietnam, you could have gotten some sense of uh, that there was a, uh, uh, a, a real commitment on the, the. I mean, many years later, of course, you, you sort of get a, a very skewed perspective. But this idea that there was such a huge commitment uh, politically and sort of nationally to reintegrating the country, and that's something that I've been getting from uh, from uh, different books that I've been reading about the war. Um, that the idea that the the North Vietnamese were simply going to be convinced to give up and say, okay, well, okay, this isn't working out. Let's just stop and, and, and not do this anymore uh, is is a little bit of a, a reach. Yeah, no, I think they, they would never have given up, ever. They would have just kept going forever, maybe at different levels of intensity, which is a mm-hmm. different thing entirely. Right. But they would never have stopped. They would never, ever have given up, not as long as there was still a uh, communist dictatorship in the North that was driving things. They would mm-hmm. never have stopped, and it was very unlikely that a communist dictatorship in the north would have fallen, uh, given it was right next door to China. They would right. have uh, appreciated that and probably right. intervened to stop that kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. So, so the game also introduces uh, the the special the special edition game also introduces some things that uh, that are different, like the uh, idea of um, uh, North Vietnamese uh, fighters and uh, uh, service to air missiles. Uh, they have some rules for uh, rough puffs, uh, which is basically a, a, a nickname for uh, South Vietnamese sort of territorial militia that were very, in, <clears throat> really ineffective. But um, you can you can use them uh, in the in the game. Um, it's it's a little bit more. There's a little bit more chrome, a little bit more you know stuff going on in the game uh, in the special edition. And um, it, it plays very much like more like a traditional game in which you're just sort of trying to take these things that you have and fight against a system that's trying to push you off the map. But, uh, you know, you can you can have a strategy. You can sort of feel good about your victories. Uh, you can sort of see a tide to the war, whereas whenever I play your original version, I just kind of feel like, OK, well, this is hopeless. Let's just see, you know, what's going to happen. But this is just so I, fi- I find the game very difficult, your version very difficult. And I, and the, the special edition is, is much more, uh, I have, uh, it's much more optimistic kind of thing. How long, I'm just curious, how far into the game are you, a, are you the designer? Have you been able to get as the, uh, as the U.S. player? Because I can't get very far. <laughs> Well, the way the victory conditions were um, developed was depending exactly on how well I did. So <laughs> the, uh, whenever really? I was I was able to get the uh, major victory, <laughs> um, that was probably the best I ever managed out of, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of plays. Right. And um, heavy defeats was the one I got every now and then. So yeah. because, well, you know, when you play a game a lot, you start to get the idea of what all the different um, different sort of tactics are and what works well and there's obviously like most of these solitaire random games there's an element of you know random random chance is quite quite high in them you can't really get away with that in solitaire games you know whether mm-hmm. it's drawing cards or rolling a dice there's always going to be a, a quite a bit of luck involved but the victory levels are they're not in any way um arbitrary they are based on a lot of uh play testing by myself and other people as well and seeing what kind of results we got. Uh, have you ever managed to get 11 or 12 or 13? Oh, God, no. No, not a single time. Not a single really? time. Not, I, haven't played, I haven't played it dozens of times. I've probably played it, you know, a half dozen times, you know, all the way through, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that, you know, if I played it more, I would kind of get the flow of the game. But I definitely have never gotten to, you know, game turn 11 or 12. God, no. Um, but the the interesting thing about it is that, um, you know, you have how much of the the game was – balanced in terms of just trying to make the game difficult and how much was your own assignment of political points to various actions because you know the the what you do on the map uh the different 
political points that are assigned to that, you know, that's really what drives how hard the game is because, you know, the U.S. you know Air Cavalry uh, Division bringing that on the map that costs three political points. I mean that's huge. Now it, it can it has a lot of different abilities. You can fly it around. It's very powerful. Um, a B fifty two attack costs two, and a B fifty two attack is just a one time sort of uh, strike against the trail uh, that uh, you know can be. I mean it, it's I think it's a one to four that so it's at a two third chance of knocking out a trail marker, but it's. Um, Sort of proportionally, it's almost as much as uh, two thirds of the cost for, I would say, um, much less effect. How did you balance those things out? Was that sort of your idea of the political cost? Or was that part of the gameplay that you sort of tweaked? It was definitely part of the gameplay that was tweaked. So that was probably the bit that was the hardest to tweak, in fact, was getting the uh, B 52 and the Special Forces uh, right. They're, they're quite similar, in effect effectively because the uh, special forces have got half the chance of doing something but they cost half as much but they can't right. quite go in as many areas as B-52 can mm-hmm. um, I do remember that the air cab is an absolutely critical piece of equipment and you do need to get it on and you do need to make sure that it's always going to be in a position where it's going to survive if it, if it dies you're in real, real difficulties you've got, to, you've got to keep that thing alive as much as you can and it's the last US unit that ever gets withdrawn as well really is a very important unit in that. That's a little, little uh, tip there that might help you get to uh, turn 11 or 12. Okay. Um, thank you for that. I will try that after our podcast. Um, the thing that I wanted to tie this into, because uh, as, as uh, someone from the UK, you have a uh, probably a much more much greater familiarity with this than with Vietnam, and that would be the Malayan emergency. Uh, and uh, the idea of the the Malayan, because I, I know that in in Malaya, the a lot of the um, a lot of the tactics that were used, like relocation of population, because in Vietnam they did the you know whatever they called strategic hamlets, I believe mm, uh, right. they tried to the move the population into uh, into uh, sort of these protected areas. That that it's not clear to me how effective that was. Uh, in Malaya, it was extremely effective. Um, the population was very. Uh, sort of destitute and the uh they were willing to trade a certain um uh loss of sort of freedom for what was really a you know a sub- substantive increase in their um uh sort of general uh, quality of life um and uh, there was a lot of you know the the um uh the british commander whose name escapes me was had quite a quite a sophisticated um uh strategy for fighting in the jungle uh this i know the special air service sort of came into its own uh as a sort of counter counterinsurgency force at that time and and the british basically as far as my understanding in the malaya the british won uh you know the the malayan communist insurgency was was defeated i wonder if you'd ever thought of doing a game on that because um the 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 same sort of counterinsurgency uh tactics and and i know that i know that the malayan emergency was a was sort of a model that for some early u.s uh vietnam planners uh didn't clearly didn't turn out the same way but i was wondering if if you have maybe you're not familiar with it uh that much from from history it's not it's not certainly a not a a well-known event but um i'm just curious if that's something you'd ever thought of if you had ever uh thought of making a game about it and if any maybe even during your vietnam research whether that came up uh, as references to things that might have happened during that time? Uh, I have heard of it. Uh, I don't know very much about it. I do know it's, it was uh, held up as a model of this is a counterinsurgency that actually worked. But um, no, I've never thought about doing that one. Probably one of the factors I imagine that's different from Vietnam is uh, South Vietnam had North Vietnam right next door to it, untouched by land invasion and quite happily supplying most of the troops. I don't know if right. in Malay emergency there was an equivalent external country that was... Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Extra manpower things is, was there? No, I don't believe so. I think there was, yeah. was basically an, they, their their base was uh, you know they, in the jungles, but then they they uh, they kind of alienated the Aboriginal uh, uh, population that lived in the jungle, and and they were able to the communists were able to be sort of defeated uh, sort of piecemeal uh, through these various strategies. That yes, I think it's <clears throat> that's actually a very good uh, observation is that the the idea that North Vietnam was sort of this inviolable you know terrain that that or, or territory that um you know you could bomb occasionally but you're never going to be able to occupy it uh 
militarily the way that the French tried to do, uh, you know, as when the French Indochina war was going on, uh, makes it kind of impossible to stop. You just kind of you can't turn off the spigot, really. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, uh, that, that's actually an interesting parallel, I suppose, with South Vietnam, where some of the um, the ethnic tribes in the highlands and elsewhere were recruited to help out uh, against the uh, Vietnamese. Right, the mountain yards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I haven't done that, but I have done a couple of other counterinsurgency sort of games. Um, Which ones? Which ones have you done? Uh, I did the uh, Irish War of Independence in the okay. 1920s, early 20s, mm-hmm. followed by the Civil mm-hmm. War. Um, I put that in for the uh, solitaire competition that they run on Board Game Geek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it won the best war game, but the, I think it was only about two games entered as war games. So. Oh, wow. I'll yeah, check that out. Okay. It is, it's a similar system, actually. It's all got it's got areas and regions connected to each other, and essentially you play two separate games in it. You play the... Um, it's a solitaire game. You play the Irish against the British, and uh, you're almost certainly going to win that. That's similar to uh, Vietnam solitaire. It's one where the British can't win. Mm-hmm. And um, then after that, you're forces, your victorious forces, split in two for the Irish Civil War, and you have to fight the um, free state government forces against the uh, Republican um, anti-treaty forces, as, the, mm-hmm. as it was in the time, and I don't know if you know much about the Irish history then, but... Uh, A little I'm, bit, not that much. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in it because, well, I live in Northern Ireland, so <laughs> it's still very much alive here. Mm-hmm. Right. In fact, um, the 17th century is still very much alive here, mm. unfortunately. Interesting. Yeah, uh, and it's it's uh, it's it's probably I don't know if it'll ever. It's not quite as an accessible subject as the Vietnam War, but it'd be, be great if that made it to a hard copy at some point as well. Oh, that that'd be great. I'd buy that in a second. Um, you yeah. also you have a you, tell me a little bit about. So you know we've talked about all this Vietnam stuff, but I really do want to make sure that we get a chance to talk a little bit about your designs because I, I I've been impressed by a number of them. The one the one that I. Um, Speaking of civil wars or, uh, you know, sort of uh, wars of, in, of one country sort of against itself, uh, I played your uh, American Civil War uh, solitaire game, and uh, that was – that's a little bit more of a traditional war game. You sort of – units get built. Uh, you attack them. Uh, they move places, you know, on connected uh, spaces. Yes, it's an area movement yeah. game, yeah. Yeah, it's an area movement, but it's very different from the area movement that we have in, in Vietnam uh, Solitaire. Did, which which one did you do first? Did you do Vietnam Solitaire first or the American War? I did War? Vietnam Solitaire first, yes. Okay, yes. all right. I think before I uh, did Vietnam Solitaire, I did a, uh, a Roman game. Yes. Yeah, uh, Solitaire Caesar, yeah. which covers um, 2,000 years of Roman history at mm-hmm. one century a turn. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's a that's a very uh that's i think it's a sort of a, one of your simplest designs wouldn't you say probably the one that, the very first one i designed which is barbarossa solitaire would be mm-hmm. the simplest design i have that was right. really just designed to give me a quick 20 minute game half an hour game where i could try a couple of different grand strategies on the eastern front and see how they go mm-hmm. and that uh that's uh, that's one that uh, I I kind of ran into while I was looking at uh, your other solitaire games. You you yeah yeah you've you've also designed uh, I think you had mentioned a game about the uh, um, uh, loyalist marches in the um, the in oh, yeah. uh, in Northern Ireland. That's fascinating. What how what's what's that all about? And how well, that, that I designed that when I was a student. Uh, the reason I moved from uh, England to Northern Ireland was to do a university course up in a town called Coleraine, which is uh-huh. uh, on the uh, north coast of Northern Ireland, nearly. And there's been a tradition in Northern Ireland uh, every single year on July the twelfth, which is the um, anniversary of, uh, people say it's the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne, it's actually the anniversary of the Battle of uh, Ogrim, which was a, a battle around about the same time during mm-hmm. the uh, Williamite Wars of the uh, 1690s, mm-hmm. which was when uh, King James of England, who was uh, a Catholic, was deposed and they brought in uh, William of Orange, who was mm-hmm. Dutch, to become the king. So uh, he came in and um, they welcomed him in England and said, great, and James raised an army in Ireland with the idea of taking back um, his English crown, mm-hmm. and uh, William pursued him across into Ireland and defeated him. Mm-hmm. And they've been banging on about it ever since. <laughs> okay. So, essentially, the Protestants beat the Catholics in 1690. And the Loyal Orange Orders are a Protestant religious organization in Northern Ireland. And 
their aim is to um, promote their Protestant faith and um, rub everyone else's noses in it, it seems to me. Okay. And every year they organise these marches all over Northern Ireland. There must be at least a thousand marches, although there are marches elsewhere. There's some in the Republic of Ireland, some in England, Scotland, even in places like Canada, with mm-hmm. these orange orders around the place. But the vast majority, of course, are in Northern Ireland. And they organise these marches where they celebrate the fact that they're still Protestant and they're still in Ireland and they're still about and they haven't been thrown out of Ireland yet and they march about the place. And the trouble is the uh, local Catholic population don't really appreciate them marching up and down their areas very much. Mm-hmm. And when you get demographic changes, like if there's a housing estate built somewhere or you know a population moves from one place to another, and this happens obviously over the time, over time mm-hmm. in any place, the, they have these, the concept of a traditional route, which is where they always march the same route. And whenever a Catholic housing estate happens to be built on that route, they don't care. It's their traditional route and they will march there. And that really annoys the locals because they're effectively saying, look, we're fantastic Protestants and we beat you 300 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's what it seems like to the Catholics. Mm-hmm. You know, to the loyalists, they probably just say, oh, we're just celebrating our tradition. To the Catholics are like, you're rubbing our noses in the fact that you beat us 500 years ago and uh, you're doing it on purpose. And there is an element of that in it. Mm-hmm. So the year, I think it was 93, perhaps, or perhaps it was 97. I can't remember exactly, but... There is one particular area called the uh, Galvaki Road in uh, near um, in County Armagh, in the north part of County Armagh, and there's a march there every year, and it goes through a very large Catholic estate, and the locals absolutely hate it, and the locals there are very extremist, if you, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Northern Ireland terms, they would be probably extremely Republican, and the loyalist marching people on the other side are extremely loyalist, which means they're more towards the paramilitary end, and there was always riots and fights and things going on and then one year the uh, government decided we're going to ban this because it's just causing too much trouble and it's antagonistic mm-hmm. so they banned it and then every single Orange Order march all over Northern Ireland they all came out in support of it and they all decided they would blockade the main roads all over Northern Ireland and it was awful you couldn't drive anywhere mm-hmm. except to be some idiot wearing a sash redirecting you mm-hmm. and you had to drive around all these difficult places and get out of the way and they were rioting every night it was Really terrible time, so mm-hmm. we were stuck, me and my friends, in Portrush, which is the town we lived in, near Coleraine in, in the north of uh, Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and I decided just to create this little game, just to illustrate the absurdity, and the absurdity came from, it's a card-driven game, and it came from three cards, there were three players, one person was the loyalists, the marchers, mm-hmm. one person was the republicans, the uh, people protesting against them, and mm-hmm. one person was the police force trying to keep them apart. Okay. And the concept, the basic concept of a free card you could play, one of them was a march card. Mm-hmm. So you could announce I'm going to do a march in this area. And then another one was a, a riot card which you could play in response to that. Okay. And then the police had a reroute card. <laughs> the march with the reroute card. Okay. The trouble was the riot card could be played against any card. So whether it was rerouted or not, there could be a riot from either side and you never knew. And then there was all the other cards you could play as well. So it was just a very simple map of Northern Ireland. You just put green or um, orange counters on it, and the police mm-hmm. had to try and get the, get as many counters off as possible. Interesting. So it's a it was really born out of frustration with the fact that these idiots were wrecking the country mm-hmm. and stuck and we couldn't do anything. So we just made this game um, and played it a few times and had a good laugh. And then I thought, so anyone can have it if they want. Yeah. I think that's about as uh, as, as justifiable a, um, a reason to make a game as, as any, and I think that's in in terms of the game hobby. I think a, a lot of games are uh, sort of take these situations and uh, uh, you know with you know especially in terms of something like Vietnam, where uh, maybe there's a you know there's really no good there's no good outcome. Uh, and just a lot of conflict and makes it sort of uh, understandable or at least you boils down you can you can sort of see the different elements and assumptions that go into any situation i think that that's something that gaming is actually very useful for is sort of yeah. honing people's uh, understanding of any given event by by breaking it down into what 
what's actually what are the relationships that are going on and Bring how it back they, to the how, simulation yeah. and the history again, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So well that's um Dave, thank you so much for uh for um being on and talking about it. Is there anything that I've missed that you wanted to to throw in that um should draw attention to? Do you have a new game coming out? Uh yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, great. What do you got? Well, the uh the one you were talking about, the American Civil War. Uh, mm-hmm. game ACW Solitaire that's also being uh, published by White Dog Games oh great yeah so it's coming out as well they're, they're retitling it the Confederate Rebellion ah okay I'm much better I never like the title ACW Solitaire it's too, too much of an acronym for me little, little vanilla I guess huh? yeah so the Confederate Rebellion it's coming out as so uh, that'll be coming out in the next month or so oh great and uh, simultaneously I also design uh, apps for um um iPads and Android mm-hmm. devices. And oh wow! I'm doing a, an app version of it as well. Oh really? Or yeah. For which for which uh, which operating system? It'll be for um, Apple and Android. Oh, for both. Oh, so yeah. there will be an ACW Solitaire iOS and Android coming out at some point in the future. At some point, yeah. I have a number of Hex Encounter games out for uh, Apple and um, iOS as well at the moment, so. You have, a North, you have a North Africa game out for the Android, don't you? I do, yeah. I've got a number of them out. Um, I've got uh, quite a few games out for uh, Apple as well. And, but did you do the Did you do the, the Poland game? Yes. Yeah, yes, that's that, that was the first cross-platform one I did. Yeah, Poland, I put you Hex Encounter, Divisional Scale, and I have a couple of other Divisional Scale ones. I've got France 1940, which has something like 400 divisions because it includes the whole of uh, France, Belgium, most of Holland, and all the British and German units. And as you know, there's absolutely hundreds of divisions. I didn't yep. realize quite what I was getting <laughs> into when I started doing that. Okay. That's an enormous game. And I have a, uh, another one, uh, Sicily 1943. Again, this is Apple and um, Android, and it's uh, much more manageable because it's much smaller scale. It's quite a nice little game, that one. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll, I think we'll post links to some of your stuff. Um, That would be fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the ACW Solitaire on uh, on iOS. I think there's a sort of a dearth of good um, Solitaire um, game sort of ports that iPad is the perfect place for uh, these simple uh, but challenging uh, Solitaire games. I hope uh, that can get some uh, some exposure. Yeah, them as well at some point. It's just a matter of getting going. Matter of time. Okay, great. Well, Dave, thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to uh, hopefully we can talk to you again uh, once you have uh, more stuff that uh, we can uh, delve into. Thank yeah, you no very problem. much. No All right. Good night. Bye now.